Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al and going to be continuing my look at weapons from Myth and Legend. Most of the swords I'm going to be talking about today come from Persian mythology and folklore, though one of them I'm going to be talking about is from Saudi Arabia. So, as far as statting these weapons out, or rather, what type of weapon you would make them based on, most of the swords I'm going to be talking about, you could stat them out as either a saber or a scimitar. Now, uh, from my research, a lot of the Arabs, it seemed, liked to use curved swords. And this doesn't mean that straight swords were unknown in the Arab world, but for some reason, you seems that there were more curved swords that were uh, favored by warriors. And probably the most well-known would be either the scimitar or the shamshir, though there's a variety of others that go by different names. But again, generally the same thing. Usually a single-handed curved sword where the the depth of the curve could vary quite a bit. And these swords were usually devastating when they were used from horseback. So before we take a look at some swords from Persian and Arabian legend, just a quick announcement. Check out the guys over at Eclectic Media Project. They bring you podcasts such as Musically Challenged. Whose podcast is it anyway? Want to hear something interesting? And their newest podcast, page 3.14 News. Check them out on Podbean and iTunes at Eclectic Media Project. On their website at www.eclecticmediaproject.com. Check them out as they are the home with a little something for almost everyone. And we're back. And before we begin, also I just want to mention that the mispronunciation disclaimer is in full effect. Since I do not speak these languages, I do not think that I will be pronouncing some of these names correctly. So the first sword I'm going to be talking about is called Zulufquar. And this is usually depicted as a sword with either two blades or a sword that is split near the point. If you've ever seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven with Orlando Bloom, the sword that uh, Saladin uses in that movie is an example. And I remember seeing a documentary. uh, We used to have the DVD of Kingdom of Heaven, and they had a documentary in there about uh, some of the swords that were in use in the time. At least I'm pretty sure where I saw this documentary was on the DVD. But the this particular sword that Saladin used was not unique. Uh, there were several samples they showed where, again, they had the sword where it was split at the edge or at the end. And from what I remember, the one of the scholars who they were interviewing said that it was supposed to make the weapon look more fearsome almost like you're being struck with two swords instead of one. 
Now, apparently this uh, name was popular in the Arabic world as there are other samples of Mideastern weapons where there are sometimes engravings that mention Zulfikar. I think that's how it's pronounced. Uh, like I said, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. So I'm almost wondering if this weapon was seen in a similar fashion to the way Excalibur has been seen in folklore and popular culture, where it's seen as this very important and very prominent sword. Now, the name of the sword, in addition to me not being able to pronounce it correctly, uh, scholars do actually have some debate as to what the name of the sword means. One interpretation is that it might mean something to the effect of splitter of the spine. It's also believed that the sword might be associated with the stars of the constellation Orion, which makes sense. Again, a very prominent, well-known constellation that has often been associated with a warrior or a hero of some type, and usually a lot of drawings of Orion picture him as having a sword hanging from his belt. As far as the sword's origin, it is believed that the weapon was given to the Prophet Muhammad by the Archangel Gabriel, and Muhammad eventually passed the sword onto a man named Ali ibn Abi Talib to replace the warrior's broken sword. It is said that Ali's own sword was broken after he used it to shatter the shield and helm of an enemy. So since this weapon is believed to have some sort of a divine origin, having been given to the prophet by an archangel, I think we can give it a pretty good numeric bonus. A plus five would be appropriate. Now, as far as what additional powers, since it was given to Ali to replace a sword that broke because he shattered the armor of an enemy, I think we could give it an additional power on the, a critical hit. We could rule that the sword maybe splintered or damaged the opponent's armor, thus reducing its effectiveness. The next sword I'd like to talk about is called Shamshir-e-Zam-Orad-Negar. So, uh, I'm just going to use the translated name, which means emerald-studded sword, a lot easier to pronounce. Now, according to folklore, this comes from a Persian story called Amir Arsalan. The origin of the sword seems to have some dispute. Uh, some sources say it was forged by a man named uh, Keva the blacksmith for a man named Prince Milad though some traditions claim that it belonged to King Solomon. Well, according to one story, uh, it came into possession of Prince Milad, and after the prince's death, it was guarded by an ifrit named Fulad Zera, whose name means possessing steel armor. This ifrit's mother, who was a witch, used her magic to protect him, and as a result, he was immune to damage from all weapons except the emerald-studded sword. Later, the hero Arsalan managed to retrieve the weapon and used it to kill both Falud Zerah and his mother. Now, it's said that the wound inflicted by this weapon 
can only be healed by applying a special potion. And one of the ingredients for this potion was the Ifrit's brain. So I think we can make this a sword of wounding. Again, give it that property where damage inflicted by this sword can't be healed through normal means. You know, of course, powerful spells like Limited Wish, Wish, or Heal could certainly reverse that damage. But if you want to make this sword exceptionally dangerous, you could take a lead from the folk story saying that, you know, because again, according to legend, the damage inflicted by this sword could only be healed by a potion made from the Ifrit's brain. So in order to heal damage from the sword, you might have to find and kill an Ifrit and use its brain to make a potion. But again, that would be pretty extreme, but it would make this weapon very deadly. Because obviously, Noah Frit is going to willingly part with his brain. Next is Tishtryra's Mace. This mace was said to have belonged to a Zoanastrian deity associated with rain and fertility. It was said that the deity could use it to create thunder and lightning. So, I would give it a fairly low bonus, maybe just a plus two but I would give it a variety of spells to make up for that. I could see giving this weapon the ability to do things like control weather, uh, summon lightning or rain, uh, create thunderclap type effects that can stun or deafen opponents, as well as cast the spell Lightning Bolt. Now the last few items I'm going to talk about come from a legend about a hero named Rostam. He was a holy warrior, so if we were going to stat him out as a Dungeons & Dragons character, he would likely be a paladin. He is celebrated in a book called the Shah Nama, which translates to Book of Kings. As a child, it is said he killed a rampaging elephant with a single blow from a mace. In some ways, he's similar to the Greek hero Hercules as he was said to be very strong even from a young age. As a child, he killed a rampaging elephant with a single blow from a mace. Also like Hercules, he would go on to perform several labors. In his case, he only performed seven though. His first labor, he killed a lion. For his second labor, he found a fountain in a waterless desert. In his third labor, he slayed a dragon in a forest. Next, he defeated a demon who took the form of a beautiful sorceress. For his fifth labor, he defeated a champion named Olad, and then later killed a demon named Arshand Div. For his sixth labor, he freed a blinded ruler named Kai Kavis from the city of Mazarandan. And for his final labor, he defeated the demon Div Isepid, and then he used blood from the demon's heart to cure Kai Kavis's sight. In some legends, it was said that Rostam also used the demon's skull to make a helmet. So one of the weapons associated with him is called 
Gors e Gavsar. This weapon appears in both Iranian and Zoroastrian myths as a symbol of justice and victory. It is often described as having an ox-shaped head, sometimes was made of gold, and may have been the weapon that Rostam used to slay the rampaging elephant. This weapon is associated with the deity Mithra. It is said that three times per day, he swings the mace over hell as a way to intimidate the demons and make sure that they don't torture the souls of the condemned more harshly than required. So because of its association with the this deity Mithra, I think it would be appropriate to stat this weapon as a mace of disruption. Also, since Mithra is associated with light, I could certainly see giving it the ability to uh, cast various spells like light or continual light. And since he's associated with truth, I would also allow it to cast detect lies. Though you could also make it function as a ring of truth where not only can the mace detect lies, the person carrying it would be unable to tell a lie himself. Now, since uh, Rostam is often uh, seen as a holy warrior, I would also give this weapon, as far as the his other weapon and a suit of armor I'm going to be talking about, I would give them lawful good alignments, or at the very least, good alignments. So you'd have to, uh, again, be good aligned in order to make use of these weapons. Rostam was also said to have had a dagger, and it was said to be glittery in its appearance, and he used it to cut the head off of Div E. Sepin. So I would maybe just give this a plus two as far as its combat bonuses, but since it's described as being glittery, I would give it some fun abilities, like the ability to cast dancing lights or color spray once per day. And again, by using a command word, you could use it to illuminate an area as if you would cast a light spell on your the dagger. Finally, Rostam was also said to have a suit of armor that is called Barb-e-Bayan. Now, there's a few different stories going into the origin of this suit of armor. Some stories describe it as being made out of the skin of a leopard, and it was worn over the hero's other two suits of armor. So it was said that when he would get his armor on, first he had a lightweight suit of chainmail, and then had a vest with plates over it, and then he wore this skin over it. Some versions of the legend say that the armor was not made out of the skin of a leopard, but rather a dragon that the hero defeated when he was only 14 years old. This dragon seems to have a connection with the sea. It's believed he lived in the ocean but came out one day per week, and its hide was impenetrable to all weapons. So it's possible that the hero may have had to wrestle the dragon into submission, again, much like Hercules had to wrestle the lion to submission in order to get his famous suit of armor, his lion skin. Still other legends claim that the armor has its origins in heaven. In any case, 
The armor has tremendous protective value. It was said to be waterproof, fireproof, as well as offering protection against all weapons. So as far as how we would stat this out, first the type of armor that I would make it, I would probably give it the, I would probably make it banded mail, because again this combination of plates and chain mail seems, at least from the pictures I've seen of armor that was in common use around this time, it probably would be closer to banded mail than it would to anything like the European Knights plate mail or full plate mail. And of course it's going to have that uh, leopard skin or that dragon skin draped over it as well. So you would have to have all three components in order to gain benefit from the armor. So you'd have to have the chain mail, the vest of plates, and the skin that goes over it. So again, banded mail plus five would be the base. However, since it was said to be waterproof, well, there aren't really a lot of water damage spells, at least not that I'm familiar with. There's a couple ways I think we could stat work with that. I, I suppose if you wanted to, you could have it reduce damage from water elementals, but I think since it may have been understood to be waterproof in that it's rust-proof, maybe could even make it immune to the touch of a rust monster. Since it was said to be fireproof, that's pretty easy to work with as well. I would say that when you're wearing this armor, it gives you the same protection as a ring of fire resistance. And as far as the part of the legend that says it's strong against all types of wet matter of weapons, well, we're giving it a plus five, so I think that's that's uh, good for that particular part of this this armor's attributes. So there you have it, some weapons from the Middle East. And I could certainly come back and explore this uh, topic at a later date. Originally, I was thinking of doing India for this particular episode. However, as I started to do some more research, I decided I'm probably going to come back and do India at a later date because there's some interesting weapons from uh, Hindu and Indian folklore out there. So... I just didn't think I had enough time to really research that topic and do it justice. So, something to look forward to in a future episode. But for now, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. And have a good evening, or morning, or afternoon. Whatever it is, wherever you are. And, happy gaming. Are you tired of playing games involving the same old stereotypical fantasy characters, cybernetically enhanced mercenaries, and spandex-clad superheroes? Then step into the world of strange things afoot, a world where almost everything on the internet is true. Strange Things Afoot is an upcoming role-playing game from Point of Insanity Game Studio. It draws inspiration from the world of creepypasta and urban legends. Players in the campaign take the role of middle to high school age students as they struggle against supernatural beings known as tulpas. Tulpas are mysterious creatures that can only manifest in our reality when people believe in them 
and they use the internet as a way to spread that belief. You can keep up to date with game developments by visiting Point of Insanity Game Studios Facebook page, following us on Twitter at POI Game Studio, and checking out my podcast at POIGamestudio.podbean.com. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at POIGamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.